Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin. Today on the show, the work of director Stanley Kubrick. Well, let's just think about it this way. Spartacus doesn't really prepare you very well for Lolita and Dr. Strangelove. And those don't really set the stage for 2001 and Clockwork Orange uh, or The Shining for that matter. All of those films are iconic, but they're iconic in completely different ways. They don't resemble one another very much. And it's unusual for an artist to make such high marks with such incredible stylistic departures. So we're going to talk about that today. We're also going to talk to somebody who watches Eyes Wide Shut over and over as a way of mentally preparing to do better, which is not necessarily a method I would endorse. Today on Afternoon Pro Musica, we offer you a full afternoon of the music of Strauss. No, that's actually not what's happening. Um, instead, we're talking about Stanley Kubrick. Uh, and can't talk about Stanley Kubrick without playing that music, which you know is also in 2001. So, um, let's get going here. I, by the way, like a lot of times on a show like this one, I sort of wish I were a guest because I think I know something about it. That's not the case this time. I am, I think, you know, almost notably not a Stanley Kubrick expert. I'm not even sure I'm saying his last name right. <laughs> Is it Kubrick or Kubrick? Well, I'll find these things out. Uh, our guests include, well, you know him well from previous appearances, many previous appearances, and ideally many still to come. James Hanley, the co-founder of Sydney Studio at Trinity College. And then joining us is the author uh, of Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker, Moore's Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Houston. So, David, um, I did have this theory that because Kubrick's films are so different from one another. I mean, there's, you know, you mentioned all these films and it's kind of amazing how indelible and iconic each one is, but they don't resemble one another's films the way, I don't know, like maybe Spielberg or Coppola, we would say the same thing about them. Can you comment on that? So you have to put them together. And once you start doing that, you can see some really interesting resemblances. Um, the ending of Dr. Strangelove and the ending of Clockwork Orange. The, the, uh, the maimed villain uh, leaps back into life. Um, the ending of Full Metal Jacket, for example, uh, has its resemblance to these two as well. So those are just a couple of examples. But Kubrick seeded, um, he, he, he planned this when he made his movies, there are odd things like, for example, the gaze of the star child at the end of 2001. And then what's the beginning of A Clockwork Orange, his very next movie? We have the eye of Alex, uh, the thug, Alex DeLarge, staring at us. 
Uh, it echoes the star child at the end of 2001. So yeah, there are those fascinating resemblances. So that, that, that I had not realized. So James, maybe you can comment on this too. The, the, you know, as a, a presenter of films, you could say, well, next week we'll be showing a Kubrick movie. <laughs> <laughs> and that might not tell your audience all that much. Comment on that. Well, that is really interesting because people who were in cinema, people who were following his career were always waiting with uh, great excitement. What was his next film going to be? And you would hear hints in the press that were things that, you know, the, the first indication was that somebody acting as an agent for him had bought a, a property, a novel or a story, or there was somebody doing preliminary research. So you'd hear hints of this, but there were long, long uh, gaps. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people viewed, uh, you know, he's, he's not as well known as he should be, but I think that the reason principal reason he should be more well-known is that his pacing of his films and the subjects he chose were really a representative uh, representation of his personal intellectual curiosity and development. And I think that he really, uh, it's a sort of continuum for him uh, or during those periods where the movies didn't appear and he worked for such a long time. Uh, some people in the industry were annoyed with him, particularly MGM, of uh, being a perfectionist when he was making 2001 um, MGM executives flew over from California to berate him for spending as much as four million dollars on this movie and that they were going to cut the budget and they, they, they this was really getting out of hand him building all of these machines and like being so insistent on getting things right and he was doing things like editing the film on 65 millimeter negative, which nobody else did. It meant they had to build special moviola machines to edit them. And I think that um, it, at that time, uh, you know, MGM had no idea, but they were forced in a contract. They had a contract with Cinerama. They had to go ahead. But the fascinating thing is that at no time did I get any sense that uh, Kubrick, Kubrick <laughs> was was uh, in any way discouraged from this. He just saw that 2001 was going to be a project that took a long time to get it perfect. And he was insistent that he would get it, his vision correct. And so that, I think, is part of the whole scenario of his life about following ideas and then really exploring them in great depth to come to a point where I think, for example, his last film, Eyes Wide Shut, is a masterpiece that is not yet recognized fully. Well, we I'm will so be glad to hear you say that, James, because I can't tell you uh, how many times when I tell people I was writing a book about Stanley Kubrick, they would say to me, what was that last movie of his? <laughs> and uh, I'd immediately be catapulted into defending Eyes Wide Shut, which I also think is a masterpiece. Although it took me a few viewings to get to that, uh, to, to get to that point of view. Yeah, um, I, I, um, I think another thing that comes up among Kubrick doubters. And we'll, by the way, we're going to get to Eyes Wide Shut towards the end here. We're either going to talk, even going to talk to someone who has watched it over 100 times. I assume we're going to talk to her from the day room of a mental hospital, uh, if that's the case. But, um, uh, but among Kubrick doubters, David, there's I think what the the most frequent accusation leveled is that there's something 
cold and clinical about his eye. There's a way in which the relationships don't generate heat. They generate interest, but maybe not uh, heat. Can you, I, well, in your book, you do address this very specifically, but I want to hear what you have to say. Sure. Yeah, well, um, it's a deliberate effect. Uh, that is, there is a distance, there is a remove from the direct emotion, the passion uh, that you'd normally see in a standard Hollywood movie. Kubrick movies are not standard Hollywood movies. So you don't get uh, scenes of heart, scenes full of heart, scenes of heartbreak, scenes of anguished pathos. Kubrick tends to avoid all that. But you do have these volcanic emotions you do have extreme passion. Uh, it's just that Kubrick is observing this emotion from something of a distance and reflecting on it. He's showing it to you in a very lucid way. And so that's a disturbing effect, uh, but it's a deliberate effect and it's there throughout his movies, I think. Yeah, James, what's your, what is your take on this? Is this an uh, unfair complaint or just... No, I, I think that what David just said is very insightful about his films. I mean, that, that this criticism about him uh, usually um, about uh, Kubrick was usually emerged in saying that he was cold and clinical and calculating and uh, he was deliberately, um, you know, making things hard to understand. But I actually don't agree with that at all. I think that, that 2001, for example, which was always criticized for that, is an incredibly passionate and disturbing movie, um, which mirrors his own disturbance about what it represented and what human, where human life was going and the curiosity about the rest of the universe. And I think that we are so used to, especially now, I think we're so used to filmmaking and generally a lot of art generally is is to be sort of immediately hits your emotions and you have immediate reactions and you tend to um, judge things uh, perhaps too quickly. And I think that one of the things, the, one of the results of what David was saying is that in in this in this situation, that distance actually creates time to contemplate the complexity of what might be going on here that is not necessarily about your own emotional reaction. It's about the disturbance in the, in the folds of the universe, if you like. And I think it's every, every bit as present, and in fact more intensely so in a film like Eyes Wide Shut. But it's also there in, in Full Metal Jacket, for example, and um, it's there in Paths of Glory. So, David, uh, you know, one thing that you point out is that Kubrick may be um, intellectualizing certain things. He may, in fact, um, have some of those uh, some of that style that we just described. Uh, and 2001 may be, you know, a somewhat abstract uh, argument, but it's an incredibly popular movie. I mean, he's made a lot of really popular mo movies. 2001, as you point out, was for that studio, one of the most popular movies ever, which I'm not sure if I were sitting there watching, you know, the the final cut in some studio room, I would have necessarily anticipated. Uh, so talk a little bit about, you know, why a movie like that does become so popular. Yeah, this was a big shock to MGM who, as James mentioned, uh, the studio MGM was somewhat doubtful about the movie from the beginning. And, uh, you know, of course, their take on it was that uh, science fiction movies are cheap. They look cheap. They don't make money. 
um, 2001 was the reverse of this. It was not cheap and it certainly did not look cheap. You know, it was a superbly artistic uh, uh, masterpiece, just a work in which everything fitted together perfectly and everything looked absolutely perfect. It was a triumph of design and of everything else. And so um, that was unprecedented, unprecedented. What was also unprecedented was that 2001 was really an art house movie. Yeah. In the sense that it made the audience speculate. You had to wonder, what did that ending mean? Um, you know, what was going on in that scene? And it was the first major Hollywood movie in which that occurred. By the way, in the, during the first screening, droves of MGM executives walked out. I think. <laughs> yes. yes. And then, so Kubrick was distraught and he went with his wife to a hotel on Long Island and, you know, she said he couldn't do anything. He couldn't speak. He couldn't sleep. Um, but then by the next afternoon, the word came in that the under 30 crowd was flocking to the movie. And then soon, of course, it became apparent that they were seeing it again and again, often or, you know, almost all the time, we should say, under the influence of a substance, uh, one substance or another. And so, uh, yeah, it became a huge triumph and one of MGM's 10 biggest movies ever. I mean, James, I think another thing that's hard for us to factor for from this distance is we hadn't really seen outer space and spaceships really artfully depicted. I mean, there have been a lot of pretty bad science fiction movies, uh, you know, that had rocket ships in them. But, uh, you know, there was Star Trek on television, which wasn't, you know, visually particularly compelling at that point. Uh, there really hadn't been that much that took this kind of thing seriously. That's right. Uh, I think that is hugely significant. Um, <clears throat> and it's hugely significant that it was actually filmed on 65 millimeter film. And um, the, uh, the the engineers who and filmmakers he hired to make those images perfect really knew what they were doing. Um, one of the problems with many science fiction things is, is actually not the actual setup or the models or whatever. It is the definition is poor and the the perspective is wrong. All sorts of things are wrong. But he actually managed to create this sort of artificial universe that was really believable. And it coincided with something really interesting, which was the intent uh, that was ultimately not successful, but it was very important at the time of the Cinerama process to try and transition from fairground type of this is Cinerama type of films to actual stories. And I can remember seeing a preview in London of, uh, of, of 2001. And it really, um, the thing that first intuited that this was going to be different was the logo at the beginning. It's the only MGM film where MGM allowed a stylized modernist lion without a roar because he wanted silence. Kubrick wanted silence at the beginning. And when the curtain opened on this huge Cinerama screen, it was like, yes, now we see somebody who can really do it. And the film kept up with that. And the, 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 the technical quality was so good. It was, it, it, and it, it touched on all of those things that were beginning to be in the public consciousness about computers, for example, and about spaceflight and about what if there was other life in the universe. So I think we should take a break now. We're talking about the work of Stanley Kubrick. And uh, if you were patient through the first few minutes, I think we've gotten rolling now. Uh, so we'll take a quick break and we will be back right after this.
Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 Right, we're back. We are talking about the work uh, of Stanley Kubrick. We are doing that with David McHicks, uh, Moore's Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Houston, the author of Stanley Kubrick, uh, American filmmaker James Hanley, is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. He's with us, too, as he so often is when we talk about these things. So, David, I want to just talk a little bit about the question of influence, um, the way in which... So, last night, I had never watched this before. I watched The Killing, which is a very early Kubrick movie from, I think, 1956. And you watch it and you think, oh, well, Reservoir Dogs. I mean, clearly, you know, this is something that Quentin Tarantino is very well aware of and has drawn from. I was sometimes there's something shocking. I read that David Chase in creating The Sopranos was very influenced by uh, by a Kubrick movie that was about a society with highly codified rules uh, the breaking of which could cause you to be uh, put to death. But it's Barry Lyndon. I don't think a lot of people think Barry Lyndon, <laughs> think of Barry Lyndon when they think of The Sopranos. But maybe both of you, but starting with you, David, you can talk a little bit about where you see the influence of Kubrick sh- showing up. I-, I know that's a very large and long topic, but give us the short version. Okay, the short version. Well, uh, you mentioned something quite interesting that is The Killing, which is a film noir, and like certain other film noir, it uh, has a very recursive kind of backwards temporal structure, you know, very complicated. And this is something that Tarantino used in Pulp Fiction, in fact. Uh, he said he was uh, influenced by that, by that film. But when I think of the inheritors of Kubrick, well, there are some more obvious ones like Christopher Nolan, I think, who has a similarly sort of uh, almost hallucinatory kind of crisp and lucid approach to the camera. Uh, Terrence Malick, who has a, uh, you know, if you saw The Tree of Life by Malick, you know that there's uh, there's an episode involving dinosaurs there. So, you know, Kubrick with his killer apes at the beginning of 2001, it's the same kind of cosmic sweep, you know, and ambition. Um, but also, I think maybe a film like Joker, which, you know, first of all, with Joker, you think of Scorsese, I think, uh, Taxi Driver and King of Comedy are influences there. But uh, I think there might be a resemblance to A Clockwork Orange, too, that, um, you know, there's a, you certainly there was a resemblance in the reviews. Uh, the reviews of Clockwork were almost uniformly negative. And like, what is this thing? 
it's disgusting, it's plotting, it endorses violence. None of this is true. Um, but you had similarly disappointed reviews of Joker, which I think is a is a terrific movie. Right. One of the early ideas for Clockwork Orange was that uh, Alex would be played by Mick Jagger. And I think, you know, then you'd really see some resemblances just in the way that Joaquin Phoenix kind of danced his way uh, mm -hmm. through through Joker. But yeah, James, how, how about you? It's sort of a bad question that I'm asking, because as we pointed out at the, the beginning, there isn't really exactly one Kubrick style that somebody can then inherit. But but where do you see the inheritance happening? Well, I think that it, it, he is a moving target throughout his career, and I, I definitely think he's influential. But you mentioned something interesting about Mick Jagger possibly playing that part in Clockwork Orange. I think that would have totally changed the nature of the film um, because of the status of Mick Jagger at the time. Um, I think uh, what is really actually interesting is how uh, by using Malcolm McDowell, who uh, immediately sort of created an aura from nothing right at the beginning. Um, it was uh, something, I don't know whether Kubrick ever had that conversation. Uh, I can imagine that um, the distributor would love to have Mick Jagger, of course. Um, and they also, I think all the distributors knew how prickly Kubrick could be in terms of being told what to do. I mean, he was one of those very, very, very few filmmakers who got away with telling the distributors where to go and and um, still got his money to do things. And I think that um, he's, I mean, I, I hesitate to think of him as an iconoclast because he's not. He's really part of a mainstream of cinema, really, but a purist kind of cinema that really explores ideas manages to make an art film and gets it released through the massive sort of Hollywood machine and actually involves people in creating image and, and, and is influenced in, influential in culture. I mean, I think the Anthony Burgess novel uh, of, of Clockwork Orange was hugely influential in the literary sense in its use of language and its, its, its whole invention of these characters. And then along comes Kubrick to make this film that it, it, it influenced popular culture in a way much more than just specifically cinema. And I think, you know, comparing with something like Reservoir Dogs, for example, it, to me, Reservoir Dogs is a, it, I liked it when it came out. And I, I, I find when I watch it now, I think it's sort of sensational and interesting as a milestone, but it doesn't excite me as something intellectually challenging and interesting the way it, if I watch uh, Eyes Wide Shut again now, it's very different. So let's hear a little uh, clip from Clockwork Orange, and then I, I want to bring up another aspect of this. Go on, do me in your bastard cause. We don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Oh? And what's so stinking about it? It's a stinky world because there's no law and order anymore. It's a stinky world because it lets the young get onto the old, like you don't. Oh, it's no order for an old man any longer. What's not about what it is it at all? Men on the moon and men spinning around the earth and there's not no attention paid to earthly law and order no more. <laughs> 
All right. Well, of course, we have a president these days who's very interested in law and order uh, as well, and maybe in kind of a similar way. So, but what I wanted to ask about, and David, I'm going to start with you. One of the things that strikes me is that the creators of Kubrick's source material often have kind of an uneasy relationship with him. So, um, you know, Anthony Burgess, uh, who James just mentioned, he came to hate the movie Clockwork Orange. I think this is partly because he felt ripped off financially. He got like $800 or something for the rights. But he also said he went to see it in a movie theater with a lot of people. And he said, I realized not for the first time how little impact even a shocking book can make in comparison with a film. Kubrick's achievement swallowed mine whole, and yet I was responsible for what some called its malign influence on the young. But, you know, you can make a similar point about The Shining. Stephen King really disliked that adaptation. But in a way, even people who read that book or read the book The Shining first are now imbued with the visual signature of the movie. It's unshakable. Nabokov said that the movie, that he viewed the movie Lolita with, quote, a mixture of aggravation, regret, and reluctant pleasure. So, David, there's a way in which, you know, Kubrick can take written material and make it crackle even more than it does on the page uh, and, and sometimes kind of almost make the original creator uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I, those are three great examples, Colin. And uh, I, I think it's fair to say that he he realized a Clockwork Orange in the movie. Uh, of course, he used an enormous amount of Burgess's distinctive lingo, the NADSAT, that the the, the sort of teen uh, Russian inflected slang that Burgess invented in the novel. Uh, Kubrick took that up and used it very, uh, very much in the movie and the dialogue and the narration. But the visual style of the movie, and in particular the way in which the the film of Clockwork sort of in, elicits in the in the viewer both disgust and you know a kind of reluctant thrill, so that you know you're excited by the violence, but you're also repelled by it. Um, that is, I, I want to go back for a moment to what James said earlier about how Kubrick wrestles with big ideas. And this is something absolutely crucial. Uh, and Kubrick was explicit about this, that there are so many movies in which um, you have the audience congratulating itself at the end by enjoying, for enjoying the the, the hero's decimation of the enemy, right? So it's like there's a bloodbath at the end of a Hollywood film. And the, the brutality is kind of, you know, enlivening and glamorous and you feel good about it. You know, this could be something like Dirty Harry or Straw Dogs or your typical Western. Well, Kubrick strikes out against that in A Clockwork Orange. You're fe- you feel very uneasy about your identification, if that's what it is, with Alex um, in Clockwork Orange. And Joker, of course, uh, shares that same kind of weird, awkward ambivalence. Um, but yeah, to, to get back to your question, uh, Nabokov, uh, the, the novel is different from the film. And at, at that point in 1962, Kubrick could not have made a novel that, uh, sorry, Kubrick could not have made a film that really captures the full kind of scandalous aura of uh, Nabokov's novel. Uh, Stephen King, um, you know, as, as you say, I think... Uh, the, the film has overtaken the novel. People now think of The Shining, even when they're reading the novel, they have in their head those pictures, Jack Torrance, 
Wendy, Danny. I think that's a really important point because, you know, if you're an author who's written a story and it has a particular sort of critical reception, if you like, it's a satisfying expression of your art as a writer. And then uh, I think that any time a novel is taken by another artist and turned into something that uses the ideas that are then blossoming in a visual realm as well as in the ideas. I think there are many, many writers who can't accept that, who find themselves very angry at what appears on screen. Um, and, and that really it's a hijacking, if you like, of the image that existed before. Uh, but I think that the truth is that uh, much as um, Anthony Burgess's novel was celebrated, um, but in a certain set, if you like, it was not a huge success to the point which, as you, as you said, Colin, he didn't get paid much uh, for the story. And uh, I think that he was a very, a, an incredible writer, an incredible artist. And I could imagine how he'd be challenged, but really also that sort of feeling of excitement about uh, what, was what was created, which was like a cultural milestone that bridged the literary and the visual. I mean, I have to say that uh, not only did I watch Malick's Tree of Life in James Hanley's well, lovely movie theater, um, but I also watched The Shining when it came out in 1980 there. Uh, and, uh, David, I'm pretty sure that the, the college students in the audience had taken some of those substances you were mentioning in connection <laughs> with 2001. But, James, what I remember about that night was they thought it was a really funny movie, not just the you know one or two <laughs> obvious mm. moments. Honey, I'm Home, obviously, is a laugh line in addition to being kind of terrifying. But there, you know, one of the things you can't control is what an audience is going to do. Uh, and it's a problem that novelists like Stephen King and Nabokov and Burgess don't really have to deal with. They don't have to watch people read their That's books. Right. But, you know, James, that night I remember thinking, I don't think this was anybody's plan to get this many laughs. <laughs> That's well, true. I think it was Jack Nicholson's plan. Uh, I mean, the current uh, <laughs> is hilarious when in the famous baseball bat scene where Wendy is sort of flailing and, you know, he says, give me the bat, give me the bat. And it sort of goes on from there and it all snowballs. And that in a couple of other scenes, I think he is very funny. I mean, he's incredibly terrifying, but he's a kind of a virtuoso improviser, comic improviser. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if I would have said, oh, The Shining, it's a very funny movie. But I mean, those scenes really do knock you out with their... Although, their James, I, James, I do feel as though if I were Stephen King, I would sort of think, you know, I mean, if this is a movie or this is a story, rather, about a very ordinary man, you know, who's not even a particularly terrific writer, who is just sort of then catapulted into this really demonic world... Well, I mean, really, he starts out the movie and he's already Jack Nicholson, you know? I mean, yeah. there's nothing particularly ordinary about him. So the scary thing about, like, uh, my dad, your dad, somebody we know turning into this monster, I, I don't know. I think that might be a little bit of a problem. Well, I think that that's the, that lies at the heart of what I think upset uh, Stephen King. I, I think that Kubrick's, uh, Kubrick's ability to actually uh, tweak those things and, and I think clearly uh, encourage 
uh, Jack Nicholson to be what he wanted to be. I think that he did the same um, with uh, with Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. And I think there are elements of dark humor that appear unexpectedly. And I think that he has enough, uh, Kubrick has enough discussions with his actors to be able to give them some room to do those things in the midst of being very anal about his control of certain aspects of it. But I think that um, it, it, what you mentioned about audience reaction is really interesting because um, it is unpredictable, but some of the most memorable films are ones where the audience can be completely split. Um, it, we've been over the years at Cine Studio, I mean, things like, for instance, um, uh, the uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman's Persona, for example, which totally transfixed an audience of nearly 500 people who came out at the end of each show. We sold out for an entire run and people came out at the end of the show not saying a word, nothing whatsoever. Then you compare it at the other end of the spectrum with um, when we first started showing um, uh, the, uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And the Rocky Horror Picture Show had been uh, dropped by 20th Century Fox. They, in fact, told us, they, you don't want to play this disgusting movie. And then we insisted and we played it. When people first started coming to that, they just, half the audience loved it and they thought this film has a future. The other half came out and they thought, you know, this was totally confusing. Nothing, that, nothing about it was remotely funny or clever. You just don't know those things. But I think in Kubrick's case, he really um, wanted to uh, make the film he wanted to of what, what, from, with material from whatever source and people would make of it what they would. And in the case of 2001, going back to that, that he was affected by people criticizing it at first, but there were lots of people in the industry and lots of people in the audience who were transfixed by that film, and they came back again and again because they were drawn by the ideas and the execution of those ideas. And so eventually it stuck and it became a huge success. All right, but we have to take a break right here. We can't. Uh, we have. We're going to spend some time on Eyes Wide Shut, and I also want to wrap into this conversation. Also, the the ch- frequently leveled charge that there's something uh, of a misogynist lurking inside Stanley Kubrick, or somebody warning us about misogyny. That's the other possibility. Here we go. There isn't really time to develop this, but that's a song called Love Crimes from uh, Frank Ocean's debut mixtape. 
that has uh, bits of uh, Nicole Kidman's dialogue from Eyes Wide Shut. So, yes, it is time now to take off your COVID mask, put on your Comedia dell'arte mask instead, uh, because we're about to talk about Eyes Wide Shut. Still with us, David uh, uh, McKicks, who's Moore's Distinguished Professor of English, University of Houston, the author of Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. They have both already dilated upon the pleasures and virtues of Eyes Wide Shut. But here's the real expert, Lila Shapiro, senior reporter at New York Magazine and Vulture, where she wrote a piece last year called What I Learned After Watching Eyes Wide Shut 100 Times. Lila Shapiro, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Sorry for laughing as I said that. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's a it's a very common reaction. There's laughter and then curiosity and also bewilderment. All right. So before we get to before we allow you to bewilder us, um, maybe, David, if you could you like in 30 to 60 seconds kind of remind people what Eyes Wide Shut is? OK, so Eyes Wide Shut is about a man and a woman. <laughs> it's about a marriage. And Kubrick, um, people don't think of him as a director focused on marriage, but three of his great movies, Barry Lyndon, The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut, do depict a marriage. So in Eyes Wide Shut, a man suddenly discovers, this is Tom Cruise, suddenly discovers that his wife, played by Nicole Kidman, his real life, Tom Cruise's real life wife, he discovers that she has a sexual fantasy life. Uh, he finds himself completely excluded. He's plunged into jealousy by the thought of her fantasy uh, about a naval officer on their previous summer's vacation. So he goes out and he wanders the streets of New York trying to have a, trying and failing to have a sexual encounter. He finally winds up at an orgy, which is designed for and orchestrated by the rich and powerful. And there he runs into considerable trouble. He, 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 uh, he risks his life. He's threatened with, with death if he uh, reveals the secrets of this cult. Um, at the end of the movie, uh, long story short, the two are reconciled. And we have what, to my mind, I think Lila might disagree. We have a version of the Hollywood comedy of remarriage that is a couple on the rocks or tormented by some kind of strain. Um, uh, is reunited at the end. So, um, so much to say about this, but um, certainly, you know, nobody even knew the name Jeffrey Epstein at the time. So, um, uh, so Lila, why did you watch? Why did you watch <laughs> this movie one hundred times? Everyone is dying to know. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a difficult question to answer. Um, I remember in an earlier draft of my essay, I had like included some more context about what was going on in my life at the time when I started watching it. And then my editor cut it. And I was like, I feel like we need this because otherwise no one will understand, you know, why I watched it so many times. And she was like, I don't know that anyone will be able to really understand it regardless of the context you include. <laughs> um, but I mean, in answer, you know, I was, I was, I had been recently married myself um, when I began my immersion and my, my husband, who's a, a reporter, he was in Alaska for a month um, and I was home working on a novel. And I think, and I've, I've always been a writer who sort of writes with stuff going on in the background. Um, but I think I 
I, I was working on a, a part of my novel that had a, a party and an orgy scene in it. So I sort of originally turned to it because I was curious about it. I had seen it in theaters. I remember liking about it, but I hadn't watched it since. And I found something just like intensely hypnotic about about the movie, kind of from those opening the opening bars of the score that just sort of put me into this creative trance state that really became very productive for me. So I would watch it a lot, but then I would also be like writing as I was, as I was watching. So that's 267 hours of your life. You'll never get back. Um, (laughs) But, um, but I'm sure you found all the Easter eggs anyway. So, you know, we have to just talk a little bit, um, and, and we only have about three and a half minutes left, and this is a big topic. But, you know, you know, Nicole Kidman actually has this incredibly memorable speech in this. But, you know, David, there is, you know, there are charges that there's something very sexless in general uh, about Kubrick, and even this movie about sex is kind of oddly sexless. And then maybe he's a little bit of a misogynist. There aren't a lot of great women's roles in the whole oeuvre. How do you respond to that? That, that that's certainly true that uh, the greatest role for a woman in all of Kubrick's work is Alice played by Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut um, what you see much more often is a, a fi- the figure of a woman who is somehow central you know who is crucial but who occupies very little screen time in the previous movie Full Metal Jacket we see the resurrection of Joker You know, he says that he is now happy at the end of the movie. What has he just done? He's just shot a teenage Vietnamese sniper. He's executed her. The horrifying end of the movie. And, you know, we have this sort of weird, ironic, black humor uh, aspect to it. In At the end of Eyes Wide Shut, we have the resurrection of a marriage, the man and the woman. And, of course, famously, the woman has the last word of the movie. And it's a word that I probably shouldn't say on Connecticut Public Radio, but she is the guide here. And I think if we had time, I could talk a lot about Kubrick's own marriage to a wonderful woman, Christiane, uh, for the last 40 years of his life. And that experience certainly guided him towards what you see in Eyes Wide Shut, his fullest depiction of a marriage. So we're almost out of time, and I'm uh, embarrassed that I can't switch back to James here. But I, Lila, I feel like uh, since we just brought up the representation of women, you should get the last word here. So I don't know what's what's your ultimate takeaway after all that. What's what is what is? Would you recommend this movie to another woman? That's what that's how I'll ask it. Yes, I, I definitely would. I mean, I think Alice is an incredibly compelling character, and really like the center of the movie. In 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 so many ways. I mean, she's like the one with the knowledge. She, she's almost like a goddess in, in, in some ways, like in terms of how all knowing she is and sort of how, um, you know, life changing her like pronouncements are. Um, and I don't, I don't see it as a misogynist film at all. I mean, I think it's about misogyny. Um, but I don't think that like, the film itself like is is has any is misogynistic no, um, and, and i think also you know she's not only a goddess but she's a goddess married to an elf this is the movie that really sort of illustrates the kidman crew's height disparity uh, and makes no attempt to conceal it a couple of times uh, we're going to have to stop there uh, but thanks very much to all of our wonderful guests to david mckicks james hanley lila shapiro thanks to jonathan mcnichol for producing this episode and cat pastor for getting us through the story storm of technical problems.